Welcome to The Brief. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And I'm John Elmer. On this episode, a special broadcast on Palestine and Israel. It's an intervention. An intervention on the escalation of violence in the occupied West Bank, as Israel steps up its military attacks targeting a new generation of Palestinian fighters, while an internal Israeli political crisis has led to the largest demonstrations in the country in years. This is a joint broadcast between The Brief Podcast and the Anti-Empire Project. Justin Podor, our friend and colleague from the Anti-Empire Project, and of course a co-founder of The Brief Podcast, is with us today to discuss the escalation in the West Bank. Thanks for coming on board, Justin. Oh, I was happy to be on board The Brief. Thanks, Justin. Good to have you back. We pull you back on the show when there are global emergencies and interventions that are happening, and we wanted to pull you back on today to talk about what's happening in Palestine, specifically in the West Bank. Do you want to just get right into it? Yeah, let's go for it. The Briefing. So as we record, the West Bank is under military threat in a way that we haven't seen in decades. Attack and casualty numbers in the past year in the West Bank haven't been seen since the end of the Al-Aqsa Intifada, which ended sometime roughly around 2003-2004. We're seeing mechanized armor invasions into a number of cities, particularly Janine and Nablus, that look exactly like the incursions during the Second Intifada. We'll get into detail on them, but each of the attacks involve the Israeli army entering into densely populated refugee camps or the downtown Kasbah area, as it was in Nablus, on daytime daylight raids where they open fire on militants amid the population all around. And those attacks have been costly, with multiple attacks killing over 10 Palestinians in the hunt for a single fighter. Two weeks ago in Janine, there was a three-hour daytime attack with the IDF going deeper into the Janine refugee camp than at any time since 2002. Ten Palestinians were killed, including an elderly woman, a school teacher, and two children. 20 Palestinians were seriously wounded by gunfire, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health. The next day, there was a revenge attack in Jerusalem. A Palestinian gunman killed seven civilians in the Israeli settlement of Nev Yaakov in the occupied East Jerusalem. Prime Minister Netanyahu, who responded by vowing that the Jerusalem settlements will be, quote, strengthened in the wake of the Jerusalem attacks. Seven Israelis being killed is the most in an attack since 2008. A couple days later, there was a high-profile attack in Jericho. An army raid killed five fighters in an overnight attack that involved emptying houses and stripping civilians and leaving them on the roadside all night. And then a few days later, just last week, came the attack on Nablus, which was, again, a daylight, daytime raid in the middle of the afternoon, invading a densely populated urban center and essentially opening fire on crowds footage showed more than 80 injured by live fire in that period of time, 80 injured by IDF fire in that time, 11 were killed in the hunt for a single fighter. The footage of those attacks in Nablus were shocking. There was uh, footage shown of an Israeli armored personnel carrier traveling at considerable speed, crashing into a group of Palestinian civilians who were going about their day in downtown Nablus. And amid all of this, 
there's an internal crisis within Israel as Israel's most far-right government in history attempts to shift portfolios and focus attention on the Supreme Court in Israel, which is one of Israel's nominally independent bodies, and the government is attempting to crack down on that. So maybe we'll start there. The recently elected far-right government in Israel took a clear step today toward passing highly controversial judicial reform, and its actions have created a massive reaction among Israelis who stand against it. The streets of Jerusalem were flooded today, with the largest demonstrations Israel has seen in years, following weeks of mounting frustrations and other demonstrations. Israel's longest-serving Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has ushered in the most right-wing government in the country's history. It wants to give itself the power to hand-pick judges and overturn Supreme Court decisions on legislation. He's uh, one of the pillars of fascism. <laughs> Sorry, I can't Lomo. help giggle at that. I mean, Lomo. the whole like premise that Israel's the bastion of democracy is somehow being undermined by these like crazy far right ministers right now is it's absurd. I saw an article by Nev Gordon, I think today he's a Israeli prof somewhere. He said the claim that the new government is on course to destroy Israel's democracy would be true only in a world where Palestinians do not exist. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> you're seeing so much hand-wringing. I mean, I'm here recording right now. I'm in Los Angeles and I was reading the LA Times the other day over breakfast and there's like this op-ed where this American Jewish man was hand-wringing. He was just like, Israel has lost its moral center. I don't know if I can support it anymore. Yeah with Itamar Ben-Gavir and Benjamin Netanyahu back in the government. This is like a, a step too far. By the way, Nev Gordon is not in Israel anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a lot of people have fled. Yeah, people are talking about fleeing. And yeah. one of the lesser known things about Israel is that many, many, many Israelis carry second passports. Yeah. It's amazing how much um, denial is just wrapped up in all the news coverage when it comes to these internal protests around the Supreme Court in Israel. <laughs> My quip is always like, oh, yeah, it's the most racist Israeli government since the last. Yeah, exactly. Since the right. last one. And the next one is going to be the most. racist. Yeah, exactly. No, 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 no. One. This one is the most racist. <laughs> so. Yeah, obviously, the policies never change. The policy has always been colonialism and expulsion and ethnic cleansing. The current government is just more open and honest about it. There are silver linings, though, and there is probably something real going on. So I've come to understand Israel a lot better over the past couple of years. I think partly because I studied Theodore Herzl in a lot of detail and the, the so-called Uganda proposal. We did an episode on that. And that was really enlightening for me because you see how explicitly and how much they wanted to create something like what England was creating in other parts of the world, how explicit that was. Like it's a, you know, the whole idea that this is not an analogy, it comes up over and over again, but it was really like, they just wanted to do that. And that's why one of these rabbis, I think it's Rabkin calls it a Protestant ideology. Zionism is a Protestant ideology. So he's some, some kind of theology type, but he says, it's not a, it's not a Jewish ideology it's a protestant ideology of settling and, and yeah it's a colonial of conquering ideology. and settling you mean yeah in of palestine. Conquering and settling. because exactly. palestine wasn't necessarily for herzl the primary concern uh, yeah 
yeah. it was just a concern. It was yeah. getting into colonial, getting into the right. colonialism game. business. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, he wanted Which, a piece of the pie. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And when you think of like American history, and you know Jackson, Jack, so-called Jacksonian democracy, like the idea that you have democracy internal to the racially superior group. Right. That's and that kind of liberalism where like you share power in this group and you share privilege in this group and everybody in this group has this kind of real they have real rights in this group. And and you realize that that kind of liberalism is such a stabilizing power for a settler colony. And if that liberalism is actually coming to an end in Israel, that is actually a sign of weakness. It's not something you do when you're in a good spot. It's something you do when you're in a desperate spot. To that end, the demonstrations have been weekly. They've been going on for a number of months now. They appear to have a critical mass. Of course, there's all kinds of government officials embedded in this. It's not a left-wing movement by any case. No, I mean, they're beating up Palestinian protesters at these demonstrations. They don't want to see the flag <laughs> like, there. Exactly. They don't, they don't want to talk about apartheid or yeah. human rights. No. And the reason why it's an issue for Israel is because Israel as a state doesn't have a Bill of Rights. It doesn't have a constitution. No. And so the interplay between the elected governments, which in Israel's history, there's never been a government with an electoral majority. They always cobble together these coalitions, which require involving parties that are single issue parties, settler parties. I mean, the famous one, the Homeland Party their only goal was to exile Palestinians from the Palestinian territories. They didn't have any other agenda. And so Israel's sort of odd democratic system of the Knesset basically leaves things in constant flux. They're always needing to bring in one or two more puzzle pieces, one or two more parties to make a government work. And there's no document, there's no founding document in the state that can be referred back to in the sense of a constitution. They or don't need one because they have so much trust. I mean, <laughs> I remember like, uh, I remember the first time I went there, I mean, the only time I went there was, was 2002 when these kinds of raids were going on in the West Bank. And, and I came back, I remember talking to you, John, and I remember saying, you know, I'm amazed because you just see people with big guns, like just boarding the bus, like they have rifles and they'll just, they just got a huge rifle on their lap, you know, and nobody's scared. Everybody's totally chill. And I, I, I remember telling you, John, I was like, this is so weird. Like everybody's so relaxed about these, everybody having these huge guns and, and you kind of smirked and you were like, they're all pointed in the same direction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or they used to sleep on the buses, right? They go on the buses and they take their they take their ammo packs off and put yeah. them on the top of the seat like yeah. we do with our headphones. It, it's <laughs> yeah, it's remarkable. If you're losing that, right? If you're losing that trust and you're losing that ability to just assume everybody's on the same page on all these things because the the ruling class right now is just so keen on stealing every little thing that they can they can get their hands on you're you know the zionist project succeeded in the 40s and 50s because of the socialism that was embedded because they had that kind of solid it was part of the social imperialist politics of that time where it was like we're socialist among ourselves we're imperialist relative to the people yeah. we're colonizing that kind of 
coalition or coherent politics does not seem to be working anymore. And that I don't know if there's a another formula waiting when this one collapses. It doesn't seem like there is, you know. And it can collapse quite easily because all it takes is one or two parties to drop out of the coalition and they're back at square one trying to navigate these things. So there's there's a certain fluidity to yeah. their parliament. But there is really something happening right now yeah. because the startup nation, as they're known, you know, the turning the massive military funding into a professionalized program where your where your spies go and work for the various companies that are selling spyware all over the world, IDF's technology. And what the startup nation is, is turning these military units into commercial units once you graduate from the military. And so there are significant portions of the economy that are involved in these large-scale demonstrations and who are very clearly sending their money abroad. They're pulling their money out of Israel. They're pulling their money out of shekels. The shekels dropping in all ways related to this. And so they are actually kind of touching on something that doesn't appear to be a short-term reaction. When you have Israelis in the street, even like, you know, when they say the left wing in Israel, they mean the right wing in any other country. Exactly. Right? Yeah, the, the settlers are still settlers, right? Yeah. And so those people at the demo are right wing, but they are also saying that to make the elected government officials be more powerful than the Supreme Court, which is independent, that is a fascist move to release from the program the one court. I mean, the Israeli Supreme <laughs> Court's a really interesting one, right? Because it, it, yeah. it, it does come down far, far more often on at least uh, approximating a type of justice. I don't know how to say that with for one population. Yeah, yeah exactly. But whenever it's selective but, for sure. But whenever they do come, to, whenever it's really, really important, right? Whenever the actual apartheid system is at stake, the Supreme Court always has lined up with the state. So, yeah. I think you know. I've, I remember talking to a lawyer, a friend about this, and and I was explaining. I was like, there have been some decisions. I don't know, maybe about the wall or something, where they upheld what was obviously a preposterous doctrine without any any foundation except racism. And my friend was like, well, think about it from the Supreme Court's perspective. If you do something that the government isn't going to follow, then you've kind of revealed what a sham the whole right. thing is. You Which always is. have to play it very carefully. <laughs> right. And you can never create a constitutional crisis by outright making some ruling that the government can't possibly follow. The entire charade is held up with toothpicks. It's sort of like now you're trying to overrule the court, not for the sacred tenets of like settler colonialism, but for petty personal gain right. or, right. you know, and that that's risking. That's putting a lot on the line here because you're you're risking the whole project so that some corrupt politician can stay out of jail or which is also what this is embedded in and netanyahu is yeah. is on trial for corruption and being in uh, parliament gives him some ostensibly some sort of immunity and there's a number of other officials in that government that are in the same place and you'd think they would be on trial for crimes against humanity and and <laughs> war crimes and the crime of genocide and apartheid but no 
its yeah. internal political cronyism, as we see in most other governments. So, so we have like the liberal paradox, right? Which is like the liberalism that creates solidarity among the chosen people, the superior race, whatever. That is maybe cracking. Mm. But there's another thing that's kind of cracking, which is, you know, John, you kept mentioning the startup nation, which is like an article in, I guess, yesterday's New York Times, tech leaders in Israel wonder if it's time to leave ahead of a judicial overhaul that could transform the country and frighten away investors. The executives of startup nation are mulling an exodus. So this is, again, starting to affect the economic it's brand, the yeah. fancy yeah. jobs. And like a couple of years back, we did an emergency broadcast when there was war in Gaza and Gaza's firing rockets. They're not devastating rockets and they're not hitting like military, you know, they sort of get better over time. But like, even if they hit the beach, even if all they're doing is is preventing people from enjoying a night at the beach or a night at the club, that's already a problem because settlers want to have a normal life. There's like sadistic settlers who want to inflict pain and, and suffering. But for the most part, it's like settling is just something you do where the natives are invisible. That's what yeah. you want. Erasure. You, just, you want erasure yeah, yeah. and then you want to party in Tel Aviv. That's and right. that has been a very important staple of Israel for decades now. And yeah. these things are being called into question in a way that doesn't seem to me, to be superficial. This does seem to have the trappings of something deeper. Or solvable. You're listening to The Brief with John Elmer and me, Nora Barrows-Friedman. Follow us on Twitter at The Brief Pod. And now, back to The Brief. And then we have the resurgence of Israel's nightmare, which are the factions in the West Bank, which it thought that it had quelled for the last 20 years, you know, in collusion with the with the Palestinian Authority, the subcontractors of Israel's occupation in the West Bank. We see these raids by the Israeli military into places like Nablus and Jenin and Jericho, where these groups like the Lion's Den has been defending their community. Should we go to a, a clip of what's happening in Jenin? This is a clip from the BBC. Palestinian health officials say at least nine Palestinians, including a 60-year-old woman, have been killed during an Israeli raid of a refugee camp in Jenin in the occupied West Bank. Palestinian media has shown video of explosions and heavy gunfire in the camp. The health ministry said the situation was critical, with many people wounded and ambulances unable to get to them. A storm of gunfire and tear gas in a packed urban refugee camp. Israel's raid began early this morning. More than 100 military vehicles entered the camp, say witnesses. So let's dig in a little bit to the attack yeah. in Jenin. Al-Haq is a Palestinian human rights group that took witness testimony of the Jenin camp raid on early morning, January 26th, when IDF special units dressed as civilians, dressed as Arabs, entered um, the Jenin camp, including some in a Palestinian dairy truck, and raided the center of the Jenin camp, besieging a building belonging to the Al-Sabah family. 
and they took over nearby homes and used them as forward operating bases and sniper posts, which is a familiar tactic that Israel uses to conceal its snipers on occupied territory. And for two and a half hours, the IDF besieged the home with shell fire, live ammunition, and used D-9 bulldozers to flatten the area, including the Janine Camp Social and Sport Club. Electricity generators were also targeted, cutting off electricity and internet to the camp and its surroundings, including the Janine government hospital, which the IDF fired tear gas bombs at, resulting in suffocation of several patients, including women and children. Alarmingly, the Israeli authorities communicated with the Palestinian Red Crescent Society that medical units would be denied entry to the Janine refugee camp, absent prior coordination with the ICRC. By the time the raid was over, 10 people were dead in Janine. That's a summary from Al Haq, and it carries with it many of the standards that we understood to define the Second Intifada. Israelis moving in, in undercover or dressed as Arabs, taking up positions in neighborhood homes so nobody knows where they are. And then the next wave is the tanks roll in by the dozens and enforce an encirclement of the area. And when we were living in the West Bank in the Intifada, that is what a day in Janine was like. You wake up in the morning to hear rumors of secret units stashed in houses that can shoot at you from anywhere without knowing. And the tank movement is what the military, the openly marked military units in something as the pride of Palestine, they never enter Palestinian areas any time of the day or night and are not confronted by stone-throwing Palestinians. And so when you see the death toll in these kind of raids that are targeting single individuals who carried out often not even fatal attacks on soldiers, none of them are accused of attacks on civilians, that the injuries come from the community standing in defense of the attack that's happening, which creates this series of conflicts that are happening all around the house in question. And that's where you get death tolls climbing. That's when you get the number of wounded by live fire entering the numbers of 80 and 100 people because there's indiscriminate fire protecting a military operation to arrest a single person with no charge, with no evidence, taking them into administrative custody. These people aren't being arrested. They're not being arrested. They're being killed. They're death raids. They're death squads. But insofar as they are captured, if they are captured, they're not then taken to a public trial where defense is shared and we all talk about the incident in question. It all is by fiat of the Israelis. They say the person's guilty, they come in and they kill them because he was a fighter. If somebody throws a stone, they turn around and they kill the kid that threw a stone because they consider stone-throwing violent terrorist activity. This is the kind of stuff that was happening in the Intifada that carries with it a certain logic, like a certain forward motion. One attack begets the next, and it amps the situation up. You go from having one person targeted to 10 people killed. Now you have 10 people involved deeply in this operation, And that's how it piles up. That's how it carries on. That's the cycle that the Israelis always start that has not, since the last intifada, actually led to an intifada. 
And we, particularly on this show and other shows that we go on, I mean, I've been saying for a decade that the third intifada is not imminent, that it will happen, but it's not imminent. But these last few weeks when you watch, it really does look like an intifada. And it looks like the kind of casualties that bring out more people. They bring the brothers and the friends and the cousins and the, you know, and it really creates an environment of resistance that's very hard to put down. Looking at the the coverage that we're doing at the Electronic Intifada over the last couple of weeks, it certainly does feel like that. The level of indiscriminate raids, the invasions, not just in the last few weeks even, but but over the last year. I mean, the raid into Janine camp in May of 2022, where the Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abuakle was executed by an Israeli sniper. I mean... It's the same. They were there taking over people's roofs, looking for one person, and they killed a journalist. I want to ask you, John, about these new groups that are popping up in Janine, in Nablus, that seem to be pan-factional. They're not associated with just one militant faction of Palestinian political parties. And what that says about the strength of the resistance in the West Bank after so much assassination campaigns and arrest campaigns and really the motivation, a joint motivation by the PA and the Israelis to to stamp out what we're seeing resurging now. That's true. I mean, in Janine, the formation is calling itself the Janine Brigades, and people are organizing in community space rather than the previous iteration of resistance, which was often carried out under the larger groups like Hamas, the Qassam Brigades, Islamic Jihad, Sarayal Quds, Fatahs, Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades. I mean, those were the main fighting groups that have been under siege by the Israelis since the Second Intifada and have really been put on their back heels, not just by the Israelis, of course. There was the seven-year plan for the U.S. under Keith Dayton to train a professional, as they call it, Palestinian security force that could internally put down these uprisings when they happen. And also in the time in between, the wall has been built, which completely encircles Palestinian West Bank areas. It lends much more credence to the idea that you would organize locally rather than be a pan-West Bank movement. In reality, it's the same people. Mm -hmm. It's led by Islamic Jihad, which is, for the Palestinians, it's their action group, right? They're like the boutique resistance group. They are very serious about their business, and they don't compromise, and they don't participate in the political system. They are a resistance group themselves. And, you know, as something that Justin points out in Siege Breakers, the book that he wrote on the Gaza Strip, a lot of these Islamic groups like Hamas and Islamic Jihad are full of secular leftists. They're full of people who want to join the group, not because of as an Islamic ideology, not because of the idea of creating an Islamic state. They are a fighting formation that is formidable. So people want to join it for their capacity to fight. And so that's what we see. And Islamic Jihad and Qassam have done, I think, a really important thing for the national movement, which is to create these joint operation centers rather than being like, this is an Islamic Jihad town, which Janine is. Now they're calling themselves the Janine Brigades. 
and most of them are Islamic Jihad, but many of them are not any affiliation. Some of them are old Fatah guys. Some of them are ex-security uh, personnel that were given weaponry from Israel in an attempt to co-opt them, to give them freedom if they fight for the Palestinian security forces. And so that's all fallen apart now. And so what you have in Janine is you actually have a cache of weaponry that didn't really exist 10 years ago. They really did clean the West Bank of weaponry to a large degree in the years after the Intifada. But that's not the case anymore. If you've seen those footages coming out of Janine from the Janine brigades, they're showing off scores of weapons. And that's created a reality that it's not just stones being thrown off of armored vehicles as they enter Janine. You can see in the Arab media, in the local Palestinian media, virtually every night when an Israeli armored vehicle is moving around, not inside the town, but just on the edges of the town, they're getting shot at everywhere they go. That's an escalation that has happened in the last few months, in the last little while, that is something that's going to be very difficult for Israel to put down because they can say what they're saying. They continually say they're raiding Janine because of an attack in Israel a year ago, and they're still trying to get those people out from there, the culprits, as they say. But you're creating a dense enough and a deep enough lineup of fighters, especially in Janine, that the Israelis aren't going into Janine in the way that they did in the Intifada quite yet. But what they had to do in the Intifada is go in completely in armor. They had to go in in tanks. They couldn't be out on the street. They were never out on their feet. They're only inside tanks, running over cars, smashing into buildings, just basically creating mayhem. And those are the signs, those are the scenes that we're starting to really see. So following the attack in Janine, which was the deepest the Israelis had gone into the refugee camp in 20 years, there was a revenge attack in Jerusalem. Palestinian gunmen killed seven civilians in the settlement of Nev Yaakov in occupied East Jerusalem. And I noticed, Nora, that Electronic Intifada covered the face of the new right-wing government in Israel is Itamar Ben-Gavir. He's famous for mm -hmm. having posters of Baruch Goldstein in his office. Baruch Goldstein was an Israeli soldier who used his Israeli-issued weapon to attack a mosque in Hebron, killing 29 and injuring hundreds in a brutal massacre. In 1994, in 1994 yeah. before unarmed Palestinians were able to take his gun and beat him to death. He's a hero, Goldstein, of the Israeli settler movement. They go to his grave and celebrate at it. And Itamar Ben-Gavir comes from that strain of Israeli life. And he was made in this most right-wing government ever in Israel's history. He was made the face of it, the internal security minister, which means he's the public face of Israel's attacks on Palestinians. And he shows up at this attack. So he was actually heckled by hardline, you know, super racist settlers. He said, you know, it's on your watch. Let's see what you do now. They're also chanting death to the Arabs and death to the terrorists, which are pretty standard slogans. Uh, you can find, you know, people chanting them all throughout Jerusalem uh, over the last few years. Ben Gavir, we reported, responds approvingly, quote, death to the terrorists. That's right. And then, you know, he that helped instigate these like rampages of settlers throughout the West Bank, burning homes, attacking farmers, destroying farmland, absolute mayhem 
prompted and encouraged by Ben Gavir and similar ministers. I mean, you see settler attacks on Palestinian farmers on a weekly basis. I can't remember a week in the last 20 years that has gone by without settler attacks on farmers in the West Bank. The killing and poisoning of livestock, the burning of cars, the graffiti on people's houses like death to the Arabs. And so Ben Gavir, he's in a position that he has coveted for decades. He is the result of Israel's settler project. He is the face of Zionism. And he is now also, I, I believe, the head of uh, the Israeli National Guard and the police forces. So we're going to see more attacks like this being orchestrated and encouraged and promoted by Ben Gavir and his acolytes. And then shortly after that, there was a raid in Jericho that gave us the option to understand how the media covers these things. Listen to the language of the New York Times describing the circumstances in Jericho, which is in what is supposed to be a Palestinian state right from the beginning of even the most feckless of peace agreements. <laughs> so this is what the New York Times says. Hundreds of Israeli settlements have been built there, Jericho, talking about Jericho. Hundreds of Israeli settlements have been built there, curbing Palestinian hopes for sovereignty, stealing their land, right? That's what that means, stealing their land, and leading to the emergence of a two-tier legal system that tries settlers in civilian courts and Palestinians in military courts. So just in that one, if only, if only, only there, there was, was a name. name. <laughs> for yeah. a two-tier. It's on the tip of my tongue. They just trip over themselves for three sentences to describe patent apartheid on three different levels in that sentence. And that sentence was buried far down the article on the raid in Jericho. And the raid in Jericho was awful. It was not well planned. They clearly didn't have the right house. They wrecked multiple homes. They used anti-tank weapons that are on the homes and the family members inside. The family members inside, her, her two sons and her nephew were in the staircase coming down to the bottom floor when they were shelled with two grenades and died. Minutes later, a tractor literally jammed the bottom floor and began destroying it over their bodies. The soldiers were shouting through the speakers, bring out the saboteurs. And we yelled back, there are no fighters in this house. They told us, come out or we will demolish the house on top of your heads. They made us come out one by one with our hands up. They strip searched us in the freezing cold and made us stand outside on the road for four hours for questions. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that's like old school Israeli tactics, like we saw in the beginning of the Second Intifada. They're being uh, recycled. And I mean, what is there to say? Like, <laughs> this is, you know, and then they wonder why Palestinians fight back. It's um, the whole thing is completely absurd. I don't know if this is all going to go the way they think it's going to go, though. Tell us more, Justin. There's some interesting differences, right? You look at these things and it always looks the same. It's the same damn thing happening over and over again. But 20 years ago, when we were watching these things happening versus today, there was a lot more solidarity internally in Israel than there is now. They were better organized then than they are now. I think there was a lot more appeal to that kind of liberalism that we were talking about. So there was this expectation for from everybody from the Israeli dissidents of which who both you know, of them are yeah. smaller in number. 
<laughs> are fewer in number now than there were then and there weren't that many then but also yeah you know like you you look up these people like nev gordon or ilan pape or whatever oh, and none of them yeah. are in israel now. No. <laughs> none of them are you're like ah oh, the israeli he's no, at no. this oh he's he's, he's in london <laughs> Uh, so, the, but then, and there's also the the idea that Palestinians can also appeal to these institutions, right? So it's like, okay, you know, there was this injustice, but you know, seek your remedy through the courts or whatever, take your punishment, and and there will be justice through this system. You know, it's long, it's difficult, it's arduous, but eventually there will be something, and you can appeal. The, you know, the peace movement in North America, whatever, will do something for you. And I feel like. None of those things are credible. And that also, you know, and the other thing is, there's also this kind of cyclical thing, which I think is breaking, where you have the Oslo Agreement in in 1993, which is like Palestinians are going to do the policing for Israel. Then something goes wrong in 2000, and the Israelis have to do that again themselves. They have to take that over. They have to take that on. And then they reorganize through Dayton, you know, which you've written a lot about, John. And they get the collaboration system, the Palestine Authority. They get them reorganized. And now you see they're having to go and do it themselves again. And the way that they're doing it now is, you know, okay, you you send a death squad and they're very sneaky and everybody celebrates their there's sneaky methods for assassinating people at their houses. But it's like, is this really a way to maintain control? Because the other thing is Israel is, is, has always had this belief. It's always based on this belief that if they can create chaos and destruction among their neighbors, you know, Lebanon, Egypt, Syria, then they can benefit from it. Right. But that may not always be the case. Like if you're trying to stably control and create a thing where people can go to the beach and where people have a startup nation, you also need a degree of military supremacy that appears to potentially be slipping. Gaza has a credible deterrent. Lebanon has a credible deterrent. Syria has not fallen apart despite all of their best efforts to make it fall apart. The idea that Israel is going to fight Iran does not appear to be a good idea <laughs> for anybody. I mean, even the U.S. doesn't want to do that. So it just is looking a little different. I mean, the suffering is still awful and horrendous, and it's horrendous and heartbreaking to see, of course. But it also does not look like it did to me 20 years ago. It looks like, as Arab leaders like to say, mm-hmm. a different equation. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always this mathematical analogy, but the equation does appear somewhat different. Yeah, now. let's let's hear about the Nablus raid, Pierre. Israeli troops have killed at least nine people, including civilians. Undercover Israeli forces entered the city's busy markets before midday on Wednesday, followed by the enforcements. Israeli troops in very large numbers went in. Uh, at first, this was an undercover unit, then followed by a large number of um, soldiers coming in Uh, special forces in uh, armoured troop carriers and uh, forces on foot with dogs. This then triggered um, gun battles with Palestinian militants. We're surrounded, but we won't surrender. This was the last message from Palestinian fighter Hussam Slim. He urged Palestinians to fight. 
but was killed shortly after in an exchange of fire with Israeli forces. And so part of that new paradigm that you described, Justin, is that in Nablus, the fighting formation has organized itself around the term the lion's den, and it's been targeting soldiers exclusively. It carries members like the other Janine brigades. It's a localized joint operations command. And so there's members of Qassam and the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades. There's leftists from the PFLP. It's mostly Islamic Jihad led as that is their function in the movement is to be the leaders in that sense. And so you are seeing in Nablus and they talk about it themselves, the lion's den in their propaganda, in their communiques, that they are the new generation. They want to say that we are the new generation, that we are the generation that's come after what we've all been talking about on this show, that we are the new generation, that this new paradigm does exist, and it's not just a repeat of the old one, as Justin said, I think, rightly. And so these formations allow, especially a village-based formation, allows for people to participate in the armed struggle that might not have found as seamless a way to join the Qassam brigades who have death over their heads just by joining the group or Islamic Jihad, which are subjected to daily night raids, that they're creating this lion's den formation, the Janine brigades formations as a way of, in part, inspiring the traditional armed groups, Hamas, Fatah, and Islamic Jihad, PFLP, both inspiring them to join. And because a prolonged intifada cannot strictly be a grassroots, it it needs to have the structures of the national movement need to participate in this. They cannot sit it out. And so these Lion's Den and Janine Brigade formations are really pointing to a new possibility that we haven't seen for a long time. It's confusing to the Israelis. It's taken them a number of years just to hone in on who they're trying to target. And interestingly, the targets for the Lion's Den have been expressly soldiers and settlers, primarily soldiers, which creates a certain legitimacy to their actions which we saw in the last major Gaza war when Gaza in 2014, especially when fighters came up from the tunnels into Israel and had the possibility to a mass casualty attack on a kibbutz. And they didn't do that. That wasn't the goal. The Palestinian national movement has moved away from that type of operation and their operations were focused on soldiers, focused on national legitimacy, and they are widely popular as all resistance activity is and has always been in Palestine. These groups are immediately an important part of the community. I think that so much of what Israel is also doing has to do with perception and trying to manipulate the perception, especially of the people that they're occupying and kind of produce this perception of their invincibility and that like struggle against them is hopeless. And again, I think that that's gone. Like, I think that's over. I think those days are over. And so that's why I think this is not this, this episode that we're doing is not just covering like this eternal cycle of violence or whatever, a relative calm and cycle of violence. But we, I think we are seeing different things happening here uh, underneath a surface that looks very similar to things that we've been yeah. seeing. Yeah. And it's important to be skeptical of the forces like the New York Times or the Jerusalem Post <laughs> who 
who are obsessed with perception and their entire reason for being is to prop up the propaganda of the state. To um, manufacture consent you know, is... Uh... To manufacture consent. That's right. That's right. And so we're always incredibly grateful for your insight and analysis, Justin. And I know as things keep developing in Palestine and elsewhere, we'll have you back on. And always great to do a co-broadcast with the Anti-Empire Project. So you can find the Anti-Empire Project wherever you get your podcasts. And also you can find the rest of Justin's work at Poder, P-O-D-U-R dot org. Okay, well, that was great. Thanks for Justin for coming on and um, joining us on this intervention on the escalation in the West Bank. Go to patreon.com slash the brief where you can sign up and uh, receive some extra goodies and um, keep the show going. Good show, Nora. Thanks, John. See you next time. Be safe. The Brief is produced by Pierre Loisel in Quebec. Nora Barrows-Friedman in California. And I'm John Elmer in Toronto. Our music is by Greg Wilson. Follow us on Twitter at The Brief Pod. Find us on the web at thebriefpodcast.com. And support our work by subscribing at Patreon.